0: Welcome again. This is the lecture that we're going to have in the series on the subject of whether Jesus was actually uh, put on the cross, crucified but taken down alive, and that he survived the cross. And the subject of our lecture is the swooning theory. Uh, That's a sort of nickname that it's received over the years. It was invented in Europe in the 19th century, but some Muslims have taken it over to try and get around the fact that the Bible is so specific about the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The Muslim alternative to this in the Quran is not very clear. There's only one verse in the Quran which actually tells us what happened to Jesus, and that is Surah 4 in verse 157. And it reads, They said we killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. But so it was made to appear to them. Those who dispute about this are full of doubts. They have no certain knowledge, but only follow conjecture. Assuredly, they killed him not, but Allah raised him to himself. And Allah is the mighty and the wise. Well, it's a very clear denunciation of the death of Jesus on the cross. Simply says they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. But it doesn't tell us what happened to Jesus. It just says, It was made to appear to them so. And that can only leave itself open to all sorts of speculation. The Muslim world has developed a theory from that that we call the substitution theory. And that is that Jesus was taken up alive to heaven without dying. comes from the next verse, Surah 4158, where it says, But Allah raised him up to himself. But that theory is very weak. It's so easy to attack it. You can ask, why would God, as the Muslims believe, they say that somebody else was crucified in Jesus' place, made to look like God, why would God crucify an innocent bystander, make him bear the image of Jesus on his face and die for something that he had never done wrong that Jesus was supposed to have done? Secondly, you can argue and say, surely God would have considered Jesus' family, uh, his mother, his mother's sister that's Jesus' aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas, according to John nineteen, were all standing at the foot of the cross, John nineteen verse six John himself was there, and if the person who was crucified was to all intents and purposes made to look like Jesus, then surely they would have thought it was Jesus. why would they put them why would God put them through such agony to watch something happening in front of their eyes that was actually a hoax, and then thirdly. If the person who was crucified looked like Jesus, can you blame Christians for believing it was? The Muslim theory actually has a crucifixion, has somebody nailed to the cross, and that person looks like Jesus to all intents and purposes. You can't get closer to the actual biblical teaching that it was Jesus. And if it wasn't, then this whole Christianity is a hoax, and it comes because of God's own scheming and deceitfulness in making people think that Jesus was crucified. Now Muslims, some of them certainly, are aware that this theory is fragile. And they don't see an alternative one. They don't quite know how to be true to the Quran while at the same time holding up this theory. And some of them have decided that the best way to do this is to attack the biblical teaching of the crucifixion instead. And the way to do this is to say, yes, Jesus was put on the cross, but he did not die on the cross, And that's supposed to be consistent with the Quranic expression, he wasn't killed. They stretch the expression, he wasn't crucified, to cover this as well. But they say that you can make out a case that Jesus actually came down alive and didn't die and therefore didn't rise from the dead as well. Amadidat, who in my country, South Africa, uh, promoted this theory for many years, published a booklet on the subject called Was Christ Crucified? followed it up with another one called The Crucifixion or Crucifixion and tried to make out that um, the whole biblical story was inauthentic. And both those booklets focused on this idea that Jesus had been nailed to the cross but had come down alive. We're going to have a look at some of the arguments that go alongside this theory. Just to put it in a nutshell, firstly, the theory is that when Jesus was crucified, He hung on the cross to a point where he was so exhausted and at the point of death that the Roman soldiers made the mistake of thinking he was dead, and they brought him down. Then his own family received his body, but they could see that he was still alive, so they carefully nurtured him and looked after him and brought him back, so they say, to perfect health, and he survived the cross. I'm going to look at some of the arguments they use against the Bible. You might hear them, you might come across them just to see how to handle this argument and how to refute it. Firstly, Muslims say, and didat, when I say Muslims, I mean the ones who write books and uh, promote this theory. Didat is the best example. Uh, Muslims say that you can see in the Bible that Jesus prayed that God would save him from death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew 28, verse 39, we read that Jesus said to his Father in heaven, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but as you will. And according to Luke 22:43, 43, an angel was sent to strengthen him. And the Muslim argument is that the angel comforted him by saying that you will not die on the cross, you'll be delivered from this ordeal. Well, I always find that very hard to understand because what this means is that Jesus had to go through the ordeal of his trial, of being scourged of being crucified right to the point of death, when he was dead to all intents and purposes within himself, only to find that at that point, uh, the Lord somehow covers the eyes of the Roman soldiers and they can't see that he's he's still alive and he recovers uh, through some agonizing process and comes back to health afterwards. It just jars with me. I can't possibly see how that could have been the comfort that the angel was sent to give him. Um, the angel strengthened him to face the crucifixion. That's what the Bible is telling us. It was certainly not a message that, don't worry, at the point of death, God will lift his finger, your father in heaven, and you'll be saved. That would be a very poor deliverance. Actually, the Muslim substitution theory at this point makes far more sense. If it was God's intention to save him, he would have done that, would have raised him to heaven, as the Muslims say. In fact, there would have been other options. In fact, for Jesus himself, in John 18, verse 4, he could have fled. He knew that at that moment when the Roman soldiers were coming to arrest him, he knew it. He said to his disciples, I'll be delivered over to the hands of the chief priests and the scribes. And he could just simply have gone away from Jerusalem and fled. Secondly, and this is one of their favorite arguments, is that the centurion who was at the foot of the cross actually made a mistake, that he just thought Jesus was dead when Pilate asked, has he died so quickly, within six hours? Most unusual, for somebody to be crucified to die in such a relatively short period of time. But the centurion said, yes, he has. he's dead. So Pilate said, all right, well, then you can take him down. You don't need to break his legs. Again, they say that uh, the soldiers, when they came to break the legs of Jesus, And the other two with him, they broke their legs, but they saw that Jesus was dead. And as Didat and others have said, you know, that's just a perception. Maybe he was in such a state, a chromatic state, that he just looked like he was dead. They made a mistake, and he wasn't really dead at all. And so the argument is that he came alive again, and he came back to good health again once he'd been taken down from the cross. We read these words in Mark 15 Verses 44 to 45. And Pilate wondered if he were already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was dead. And when he learned from the centurion that Jesus was indeed dead, he granted the body to Joseph of Arimathea. But you know, if you look elsewhere into the scriptures, you don't even have to go into Roman history. Just into the scriptures and you will see just what the consequences were allowing a condemned criminal to escape. In other parts of the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, we find incidents which bear this up. For example, in Acts 12, verse 19, we read that Simon Peter had been arrested and Herod had already put James to, the, to death, so he decided he would do the same with Peter to satisfy the Jews, and he was going to bring him out the next morning before them. And at that time, he was sleeping between two guards. The guards were actually alongside him. And yet the Bible says that an angel from heaven came down and delivered Peter, opened the gate, and he walked out, and he was gone. The next day, it says that Herod examined the sentries to try and find out why Peter had escaped. And it doesn't seem to help whatever they told him. He had them uh, put to death and executed for failing to do their job. That was the penalty for a Roman soldier, for allowing a prisoner to escape. The same thing we find in Act 16, and verse 27, that Paul and Silas uh, were in the prison after uh, the magistrate had put them there and beaten them because of the stir and the commotion they'd apparently caused through their preaching. And the jailer was outside the gate, and suddenly all the gates of the prison swung open, and all the prisoners could have just walked out and run and gone away. But when the jailer saw what had happened, Act says that he actually drew his sword and was going to kill himself and commit suicide because he thought they'd all gone, saw the gates open, and that was the penalty that he knew he would have to face if they had indeed escaped. So rather than wait to be executed, he decided he'd rather kill himself. You can see what the consequence was for any Roman soldier for allowing a prisoner to escape. So it's absolutely so improbable that the soldiers who were observing Jesus to see whether he was dead would have made a mistake here. They would have been 100% sure. And in fact, one of them took a step to make 100% sure. It says he took his sword and he thrust it into Jesus' side, John 19, verse 34. And once there came out blood and water. And the important point here is that a sword thrust of that nature right into his side would have killed anybody. You don't have to be crucified to be at the point of death for that to happen. Yet I remember Ahmadidat in a booklet of his, one of them, saying that this actually helped to revive Jesus. It it helped to to stir the circulation of the blood in his body. And I've said to myself, I, I would love to find any medical expert who could confirm that, that a sword thrust of that magnitude could help to improve your health. It just shows you the extremes that these Muslim writers have to go to to try and make up a case here and how weak their alternative is to the the story of Jesus' death on the cross. Then the third point they raise is to say that the Jews themselves doubted that Jesus was dead. Once he'd been buried, the argument goes that the Jews were anxious. They were scared that he was still alive and that he might come back to health and he might escape and that he'd be able to proclaim that he'd risen from the dead. So they went to Pilate to prevent his escape. This is the argument. And they use a text like this one, Matthew 27, verse 63, to make their point. They say to Pilate, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise again. But when you read the whole passage, it goes on to say that they feared that his disciples would come and steal away his body and that they would proclaim that he had risen from the dead. That's the next verse. They never thought that Jesus would recover and walk out alive. They said, make the tomb secure. Otherwise, his disciples might steal the body and proclaim his resurrection. But when they use the expression, while he was still alive, you've got a clear indication that they believed he was dead already. So we remember that imposter said, while he was alive, um, I will rise on the three day, after three days now he's no longer alive, he's dead. There was no question about that. They were satisfied that he had been killed. They were concerned about the prophecy of Jesus that once I have been killed and I'm being put to death, then I will rise from the dead. I will be resurrected on the third day. And it was the very fact that he was dead that made them fear that some sort of attempt would be made to give credence to Jesus' predictions. So you can see that in all these stories, there's not too much to back up the Muslim point. In fact, it's ridiculous. It, the story just has no credibility. I'll give you another one where Ahmedidat himself says, and this, this is really stretching it, uh, that Jesus was planning a coup in his booklet, Crucifixion or Crucifixion, on page 10. And this is a new argument. We never heard this one before. That Jesus was actually, according to him, trying to overthrow not only the chief priests, all the officers and the soldiers that had been sent from them and the Pharisees, but also that he intended to overthrow the Roman soldiers as well. (laughs) Jesus had only 12 disciples, and one of them, Judas, had disappeared that evening and gone out to betray him. So it's, I mean, it's ridiculous to suggest that with only 12 disciples who were anything but trained soldiers, that Jesus could decide to actually Uh, plan a coup and to overthrow the Romans and the Jews with uh, with just this group that he had around him. We find the opposite in the Gospels. Rather that whenever people wanted Jesus to get drawn into a position to head up the Jews' grievances against the Romans and perhaps stage a revolt, that Jesus always avoided that kind of confrontation. He used to walk away from it. In Luke 20, verses 19 to 26, Jesus refused to enter into debate on whether paying taxes to Caesar was lawful or not. John 6.15, the moment the crowds gathered around him, he simply moved away from them. And then thirdly, in Luke 22, verses 25 to 27, he told the disciples not to seek any kind of power or earthly authority. So very strange to suggest that Jesus was trying to advocate a coup. Uh, and trying to get his disciples to prepare themselves and get armed for it. One of the reasons uh, Didad raises, or one of the points he raises, is that Jesus said the same night to his disciples that he was betrayed, uh, let him who has a sword go now and buy one. And he says, there you are, you can see that Jesus was telling his disciples to be armed. But the interesting thing is that Simon Peter immediately says to Jesus, look, Lord, we have two swords here already. And in reply, Jesus said to him in Luke 22 38, It is enough. Difficult to know exactly what Jesus meant by that reply. So Didad says, He means we've got enough already. And I stand by and I say, What? 11 untrained disciples with just two swords, and you're going to take on not only the Jewish soldiers, but the Roman soldiers as well, and stage a coup? Highly improbable. And a wager revolution with just that? Not likely. When Jesus said it is enough, it basically what he was saying was enough of that, meaning you've misunderstood me. Peter at this stage always had his mind on things other than what Jesus was really talking about. Um, and here's a classic example. The last thing Jesus had in mind was that his disciples should even raise their swords to try and res- rescue him. He said, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I tell you, he said in Luke 22, verse 37, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was reckoned with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So nothing was further from his mind. In fact, when the soldiers arrived and Simon Peter took a sword, one of the two that he had, and decided to defend Jesus and struck the high priest's uh, servant and cut off his ear, Jesus healed him much, I think, to Peter chagrin and uh, disappointment. And these things show that Jesus himself had no such thing in mind as either surviving the cross or running away from it. Rather, he faced it. He was squaring up to it all the time. What he feared in the Garden of Gethsemane was being separated from his Father. His, his anxiety reached a pitch when he fell down in the garden and just said to him, my father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Any other person would have reached that fever pitch of fear at the point of crucifixion. But with Jesus, it was knowing that he was about to be separated from his father and being handed over into the hands of sinners that made him fear more than anything else. And for that reason, he uh, prayed for, for strength, offered himself to God in the garden and said, if you will not take this cup from me, then I will drink it. And once that was settled, then he faced the crucifixion with complete fortitude. And so you can see that these arguments really count for very little, and I don't see much point in going to any more of them. What it does bring out is that the Muslims are aware that their argument against the crucifixion of Jesus, their alternative in other words, that Jesus was raised up to heaven without dying and somebody else was crucified in its place is not easy to sustain. So they look for an alternative. Um, it's always been said in law, I'm an attorney by a profession, it's an old saying in law that abuse of the plaintiff seldom helps the defense. And that's what the Muslims are doing here. They haven't got a decent defense, so you attack the plaintiff instead. And that's what the, the Muslims are doing, people like Ahmedidat and others, attacking the Christian story of the crucifixion, trying to whittle it down, trying to unscrew it a little bit rather than just stick by their own alternative and that is that Jesus was taken to heaven without dying. But that brings me to a point which is relevant here because it also works on the principle that Jesus had never died on the cross but it's one which Muslims generally raise up as a strong argument against the Christian faith and I want to deal with it in some detail. And that is what Jesus called the sign of Jonah. In Matthew 12, verse 39 to 40, we read that Jesus said to the Jewish leaders of his day, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And as I said earlier, Jesus called this the sign of Jonah. Amadidat, in fact, brought out a booklet on this subject called What Was the Sign of Jonah? And he attacked this teaching of Jesus on two grounds. The first one is to ask the question, was Jesus dead or alive when he came down from the cross? That's that swooning theory again. And then the second one was that if Jesus was crucified on a Friday, and rose from the dead on the following Sunday, how could he have spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Uh, Friday to Sunday is only one day, Saturday and two nights. And these are the two arguments raised. And you hear them quite often. They come out in other Muslim writings as well. Once again, to undermine the biblical story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Well, let's have a look at them. First one was Jesus dead or alive when he came down from the cross. The Muslim argument is that when Jonah was swallowed up by the fish, he was alive. When Jonah was coughed up by the fish on the shore, he was still alive. And all the time that Jonah was in the stomach of the fish, he was alive. So they say that if Jesus says, as was the as Jonah, so shall the Son of Man be, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the stomach of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They say, therefore, if Jonah was alive, then Jesus must have been alive as well. So you take the words out of context and you make them say something different. In his booklet, What Was the Sign of Jonah? Page 6, Didat says, if Jonah was alive for three days and three nights, then Jesus also ought to have been alive in the tomb as he himself had foretold. But that's not what Jesus was saying. Uh, it's a given that Jonah was alive, that he never died. We'll accept that. But Jesus' similarity with Jonah here has got nothing to do with his state, whether he was living or not. The similarity is confined to the time period, to the three days and three night time period. Didat just overlooks that. doesn't mention it. He just stretches the likeness. But it's quite clear that it's three days and three nights for each. Three days and three nights in the stomach of the fish and so in the heart of the earth. Nothing to do with whether the one was alive and the other one, therefore, was alive as well. I can prove this from another example in the Scriptures, and that is a statement made that is recorded in John 3.14, where Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is a very similar statement to the previous one. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, so will I be, sorry, in the the stomach of the fish, so will I be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now again, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. Now the interesting thing here is that this serpent that was lifted up on a a pole, a brass serpent, in the wilderness was never alive. It was dead before it was put on the pole, it was dead on the pole and it was dead when it was taken down. Uh, It was made out of brass, it wasn't a living snake. So you can see the likeness cannot possibly be in terms of whether the one was alive or dead or not. Jonah was always alive. The serpent was never alive. That's not what the likeness is. The likeness is confined to the similarity that Jesus mentions. In this case, Jesus mentions the fact that the serpent was lifted up, put on a pole, nailed to it and lifted up. And so Jesus said, and as that happened, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. The brass serpent was lifted up for the healing of the Israelites. Any of them who were bitten by snakes in the desert could go and look at that snake and if they looked at it, the brass serpent on a pole, they would be healed. And that is a type and a foreshadowing of Jesus so that all sinners who have been stung by the consequences of sin are free to look to the Son of God who is lifted up for us and crucified and we are able to be saved and freed from the consequences of our sins. That is the likeness you see it very clearly Jonah 3 days and 3 nights and with the serpent purely the lifting up and in both cases Jesus confines the similarity to that point unlike the muslim argument that if Jesus if Jonah was alive Jesus must have been alive just for emphasis i repeat the point in the second quote the serpent never was alive it was always dead so it makes it ridiculous to ask the question what was the state of the person, was he alive or dead but this brings us to the second point that Didat raises and that is the question of the time period and this is an important one, the Muslims have got a better argument here, they say how could he possibly have been in the tomb three days and three nights if he was crucified on a Friday and rose again on a Sunday and some Christians have tried to get around this over the years by saying well maybe he was crucified on a Thursday or maybe on a Wednesday Bible doesn't say what day he was crucified. But if you look at the gospel writings, it is quite clear, and Christians are universally agreed on this, that there was only one day in between, and that was the Sabbath day. That Sabbath happened to be a high day at the time of the Passover, but that Jesus was laid in the tomb that evening on the Friday. On the Saturday, all the women who were there, Mary Magdalene, the mother of Jesus, and the others, rested because of the law of the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, early, they went to the two. No question about it, he was crucified on a Friday. But that begs the question, especially where do you get three nights out of this? I mean, mathematically it's not possible, I'll be the first to agree. You could stretch an argument for three days and say, well, Friday he was crucified, in the morning he was all day on the cross, Sunday he was up first thing at dawn and then the whole of Saturday in between. Um, But where do you get three nights out of this? You don't. You've only got Friday night and Saturday night. And Amadita says again in this booklet of his on page 10, the greatest mathematician in Christendom will fail to obtain the desired result. We don't have to be greatest. You just accept it. We ask the question, what then was Jesus meaning? Did he have something wrong here? Not at all. The issue here, the most important question here, is the big difference between 1st century Hebrew and 20th century English. We're not living in that time when Jesus was crucified. That was 2,000 years ago. And different languages have different rules. They have different colloquialisms. They have different expressions. We have an expression in English, a fortnight. If I say to a friend of mine, I'm going away. And he says, how long are you going away for? So I'm going away for a fortnight. What does that mean? Two weeks. Does it mean that I'm going away for an exact period of 14 days and 14 nights and that as I left at 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon, two weeks later at the same exact moment, Friday afternoon, I'm going to return? No, it doesn't. In the English language, a fortnight is a general expression to mean I'll be away for, on average, two weeks, maybe a day or two less, maybe a day or two more, but anybody on the other side knows it means for the next two weeks you won't be around. Never defined in detail. And you find the same when you look at the Jewish uh, language, Hebrew, and look at its colloquialisms, and you realize here that it is exactly the same. First thing I want to point out in this respect is that we never use an expression in English today like three days and three nights. You ever hear that? I say to you, how long are you going away for? Fourteen days and thirteen nights. Fifteen days and fifteen nights. You never hear it. Uh, when are you coming back? I'll be away for four days and four nights. You just don't hear it. We just say I'm going away for four days. Whether I'm going to be away five nights or whether I'm going to be away only three, it's not the point. I might catch a plane first thing in the morning, come back on the fourth day late in the afternoon. As far as I'm concerned, I'm away for four days. I only sleep over three nights. Or I might go the night before and come back early the next morning. So I'm away for five nights, but I still say I'm away for four days. That's how the English language defines things. We never say days and nights. It's a Jewish colloquialism. It is not something that we use ourselves. So we have to ask ourselves, why did the Jews use this expression and how did they use it? Well, they used it because it's a, a, a Semitic form of speech to bring contrast. You find this in the Bible, in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Sounds straightforward enough. Until you appreciate that that's a Hebrew colloquialism. What would we say today if we spoke about creation? And somebody said, what did God create? We would say, oh, he created the universe. This tiny little speck of dust of a planet on which we stand is part of that universe. We wouldn't say God created the heavens and the earth. Or we wouldn't say God created the heavens and Mars. (laughs) <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. We would just say in our language today, quite simply, God created the universe. But it's a Hebrew form of speech to draw contrast between likeness and difference, between day and night, between light and darkness, and so on. So that is why it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in the Quran you find the same expression, walt, Samawati wal art, in both the heavens and the earth, it uses the same contrast. So that is what the Hebrew language does here. Use this contrast between light and darkness, three days and three nights, just for emphasis. It doesn't mean necessarily three exact days and nights. And the other point to notice here is that in the Hebrew language, you never said three days and four nights, or three days and two nights, even if that was the case. Whatever the days were, so the nights were. That was part of the colloquialism. The reason I say that is because all over the Bible, every time you find this colloquialism used, that's what you find. Go to Exodus 24, verse 18. You find that Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights. In this case, in Jonah 1, verse 17, Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. In Job 2 verse 13, we read that Job friends sat with him seven days and seven nights. What does that mean? That the Jews always said, if we do anything by day, we've got to do it by night as well. If we're going to sit with him seven days, we must sit seven nights as well. If we fast 40 days, we must fast 40 nights. No, it's colloquialism, but it's always the same. The point is, it may not have been 14 nights, may not have been seven nights, but in Jewish speech, you have to use the same expression, seven days and seven nights, three days and three nights. Now, let me give you another example in the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 16. It says, Esther fasted three days, night and day. There you've got that same colloquialism again. Three days, night and day. Does it mean three exact days and three exact nights, period of 72 hours? Well, in this case, no, because we read that on the third day she went into the king's chambers. Ah, you see, you've got to look at it. You can see the Hebrew language here is different. Uh, we would have said, if she said she fasted three days, night and day, we would have added to that that on the fourth day she went into the king's chambers. But the uh, book of Esther says that on the third day she went in, after only two nights. But the point is, it's a Hebrew colloquialism always to say 3 and 3, 14 and 14, 7 and 7, 40 and 40. You don't break it down into a different period of time, even if it is. Now, we have from the New Testament conclusive proof that this is exactly what happened with the crucifixion of Jesus. Once again, we're going back to those Jewish leaders who went to Pilate and they were worried that the body of Jesus would be stolen. So what they do is this, Matthew 27, verse 63 to 64, they say to Pilate, so we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise again. Therefore, order the sepulcher to be made secure until the third day. Ah, now, same pictures in the book of Esther. We would have done the opposite. We would have said, he said, after three days I'll rise again. We would have taken that to mean that once the three days had passed, as soon as Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday had gone, oh, it'd rise on the fourth day, on the Thursday. That's how we would think, something like that. So we would have said to Pilate, order the sepulcher to me made secure till the fourth day. That's what we would have told Pilate in our English language today if we'd understood Jesus to be speaking 20th century English or 21st century English. But in the Hebrew language, They understood after three days to mean any time within a three-day period. In other words, after two nights. So we can see quite clearly here that once two nights had gone, they were concerned. Once just two nights had passed, then the body might be stolen. Then they might proclaim he's risen from the dead. So make the tomb secure right through until the third day. But on the third day, before the third night, mind you, you you can let it go. They understood Jesus perfectly. They understood that when he said, I will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, that meant a period within 72 hours, embracing only a portion of it. They knew exactly what he was saying. That's why it always says of Jesus too in Acts 10.40, for example, that Jesus rose on the third day and not on the fourth day. And by the way, at the time of Jesus and right throughout Christian history, no Jewish leaders have ever challenged the Gospels on this point and suggested that Jesus was contradicting himself when he said three days and three nights and then turned out that he rose again on the third day after only two nights. So that is the answer to that. I can't see that the Muslims can fail to accept that. It's just simply understanding the colloquialism of the Jews at the time. Just to move to a conclusion here, Have a look at this sign of Jonah just from another point of view, with another statement Jesus made, which helps to be to strengthen the point we're making. Jesus said to the Jewish people, it's recorded in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That means within three days. When he drove out the money changers for all the corruption and fraud that was going on in the temple, their business and turned over all their tables. They said to him, John 2 verse 18, what sign do you have to show us for doing this? We're always looking for signs, but we're right back to Matthew 12 where they did the same. What sign do you have for us? And then Jesus gave them the answer, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. It's exactly the same sign as with Jonah. Three days, come back again. They didn't understand him. They thought he meant the temple itself, not his body. But John says, clearly it was his body. The Jews say to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? You can see what I mean. They didn't understand him at all. But the point they miss, and especially Ahmadinejad and others, is that Jesus didn't say, weaken this temple. He said, destroy it. Bring it down to nothing. Bring it to the ground. In other words, put me to death. No hint here that he ever thought he could survive the cross. This was a saying that, interestingly, the Jews never forgot. It's funny how when you read the Synoptic Gospels, you don't find the saying, destroy this temple and three days I'll raise it up. But you find that at his trial, they remembered he'd said something like this. The Synoptic Gospels... Don't mention the actual saying, but they, what is remembered is that something like this was said. So they come and they give evidence against Jesus in Matthew twenty six sixty one. This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God in three days and build another one not made with hands. Mark fourteen fifty eight, much the same. And even when Jesus was nailed to the cross in Matthew 27, verse 40, The Jews mocked him saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, come and save yourself. (coughs) Later, even the Jews argued in Acts 6 verse 14 that Stephen said, this uh, man is preaching that Jesus will come and destroy our holy place. Oh, they never forgot that saying. Even long after he was dead and buried and ascended to heaven, they were still going on about it. But as John says, he spoke of the temple of his body. What Jesus was saying is destroy me and I'll raise myself up and in doing so I'll vindicate everything I've said about myself. I am the real temple of the living God, not this building. In, as Colossians says in chapter 1 verses 19 and 15, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the image of the invisible God, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What is the ultimate significance of the sign of Jonah? Well, it was the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed. He, he had raised other people from death to life. That's quite a feat, quite an achievement. But believe me, there had never been a feat ever performed by any magician, by any uh, constructor, by any mathematician, by any scientist, by any brain, by any wizardry like the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The man is stoned dead and raises himself to life. John 10, verses 17 to 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. When the Jews heard things like these, they used to argue with Jesus and they said, you know, who do you claim to be? What do you think you are? John 4, verse 14, they say to him, are you greater than our father Jacob? who uh, gave us this well, drank for it himself, sons and his cattle. John 4 verse 12, And Jesus replied and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, becoming in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. So he was constantly showing that he himself was greater than anything that had come before him. He was greater than the temple. And the sign of Jonah was the greatest miracle that could ever be performed. So if Muslims start Bringing up this issue, sign of Jonah, and say to you, um, this is a weakness in Jesus' teaching. Uh, He wasn't in the tomb three days and three nights, and uh, Jonah didn't die; Uh, he survived. Answer those points. Use given the answers I've given, but use the sign of Jonah as an opportunity to witness to them of just of the glory of Jesus in being greater than anything that come before him. The miracle he performed is the greatest ever seen on earth. And his implication was that he was the greatest person who'd ever been on earth. It's One thing I love about John's Gospel is the way the, uh, John records all sorts of questions about the greatness of Jesus by comparison with previous figureheads who went before him. I mentioned the one to you. Are you, are you greater than Jacob? They asked him. That was the uh, sort of patriarch of the Samaritans. Well, as you know, the patriarch of the Jews was Abraham. And they asked him the same question. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Who died and the prophets died? Who do you claim to be? What do you mean if anyone uh, hears your word, he will never taste death? And Jesus gave the answer again. Before Abraham was, I am. John 8, 58. Not only did he come to bring a better water to drink than Jacob could ever have given through his well, the water of eternal life, but Jesus existed before Abraham had ever been brought into being. All over John's gospel, Jesus sees him as greater than Moses. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 43, Jesus said, David calls the Messiah his Lord so I can be his son. Moses wrote of me, David calls me his Lord, and Abraham rejoiced to see my day. In all these, Jesus shows the superiority of who he is over everything that came before him, and most importantly, the temple itself, the very temple of the living God destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, meaning himself. You see here how you can use Muslim arguments and objections as an opportunity to witness to them of the the glory of Christ and who he really is. If Jesus had survived the cross, there would have been no sign. (laughs) What would he mean by saying, no sign will be given to this generation but the sign of Jonah? If he had survived it, there would have been no sign. The sign was that when to all intents and purposes he could never have come back, he was dead and buried, that he raised himself to life and came back and ascended to heaven. We have a glorious gospel, especially when it comes to the subject of the crucifixion. Don't let Muslims put you off with substitution theories, swooning theories or arguments against the text. This is a gospel that we share because of just what it is. It is the glory of God. It is the basis of our salvation and I encourage you in it.